Okay, very welcome to this uh, event. Uh, I'm Eric Bergloff. I'm the director of the Institute of Global Affairs, and we are most delighted to have uh, Dambisa Moyo here. She's welcome here to LSE and also to uh, the Institute of Global Affairs. A few people who are more global than Dambisa. She has, I've had the pleasure of knowing her for some time, and, and I've seen her meteoric rise to... Um, and uh, she has been catapulted to fame, but uh, maybe more importantly, she has become a very important voice for a part of the world that is not very well rep represented in, in global debates. Her uh, first book, Dead Aid, was a challenge to the global aid community. It was, a, a, again, a voice from a a generation of, of Africans that had both felt that much of this aid business was very patronizing and also they had seen many of the dark sides of aid. Of course, she was accused of not understanding what aid was really about and for not really recognizing all the improvements that have been made in terms of health and, and, and uh, well-being. But most of us felt that she was onto something. There was something that needed to be fixed uh, in, in the aid business. She went on to address larger issues, global issues, but I think it came out of the same experience as looking at the world from an, an African perspective. She, she had seen how China had made inroads into Africa and how China was presenting new models and new ways of thinking about development. And her feeling was that somehow the West had lost out or the West had not really got it. And um, it's very timely that actually uh, the other day there was a launch in, in Beijing of, at the leading uh, Chinese university, Tsinghua University, of a think tank or that is devoted to Chinese spreading Chinese economic practices, Chinese economic thinking, and has, the very, has a very long, complicated name, but it has an acronym, ACCEPT. So it's a, you know, part of what we'll be facing going forward, thinking about or learning from China and, and understanding how the Chinese want to uh, portray their own uh, development experience. She has now come out with a book, Actually, I should. You can hold it up, Dambisa. <laughs> Edge of Chaos. It's it's the um, in a way it's a sequel of the previous book. Uh, it's about really about the politics and what's wrong with the West in terms of how our politics uh, operate. It's not. I'm sure that there are some controversial. I know that there are some controversial proposals there, and we are looking forward very much to both. Um, uh, Dambisa's analytical rigor, but also her ability to provoke. And uh, so, Dambisa, the floor is yours. And let me just say, before you applaud, uh, <laughs> that uh, please turn off your, or turn your mobile phones to silence. Uh, we want to record this session, so it's better to not have those uh, disturbances. There is a hashtag somewhere, but I don't see it. Uh, We'll, we'll figure it out, uh, I'll, uh, but um, you, you should feel free to, to tweet here. 
And again, Dabisa, you're most welcome. Thank you. Good evening. Oh, can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Okay. Hopefully I don't have to lean in the whole way. Um, anyway, good evening. Oh, my God. Nobody has energy anymore. Good evening. <laughs> Um, I am absolutely delighted to be here. Eric, um, thrilled to see you. It's been a long time, but um, always a pleasure to, um, to see you. And obviously, I'm, I'm very excited to be back here at LSE. Um, and thank you to everybody for being here in the evening. I know that um, most people, when I was your age, on a Thursday night, I can assure you I would not be listening to some economist. I'd be out there. Um, but anyway, um, these are important issues, so I'm very happy that you've taken the time to be here this evening. Um, I was born and raised in Zambia, southern Africa, one of the poorest countries in the world. And um, throughout my time, my, my being born there, my formative years, and living in Zambia, we were always told that democracy and market capitalism were the path to economic success. Over the past five to ten years, I've traveled to over 80 countries around the world, and one thing has become clear and that is that people are no longer convinced that democracy is the path to economic success and prosperity. And the question that I've asked on my travels is, why are they no longer convinced? And the answer, I believe, is that people like myself, who believe in liberal democracy and who believe in free market capitalism, are simply no longer convincing. So what I'd like to do this evening is to basically walk you through initially why it is that we are worried or why people are concerned that democracy is under siege and why it is we're no longer convincing. And then I'd like to spend a bit of time talking to you about why it is actually urgent that we remedy economic, uh, because of economic issues, remedy the challenges uh, and the problems that are seen quite clearly problematic for democracy. And then I'd like to spend a bit of time talking to you about some of the solutions or the proposals that I put on offer. Um, ten proposals in the book. I'm not going to go through all of them because I would love you to buy the book. So I'm not going to give you no free information here. But, of course, I will give you a bit of flavor for some of the perhaps more controversial proposals, and then we can talk. I think there will be a bit, a bit of time for Q&A, so I'd love to hear your thoughts and your pushback and to engage a little bit with you on uh, where you think there might be scope for improvements. It's important for me to start, to start off by saying off the bat that the book is designed to really underscore um, a frustration that is borne by people like myself who are trained economists. I did my doctorate in economics many years ago, and I want to focus on economic issues. But unfortunately, many of these issues, which I'm going to outline for you in a moment, are long-term economic and structural problems. And unfortunately, because of the myopia that is embedded in the political system, particularly in liberal democracies where elections occur so regularly, we find that there is a schism or a mismatch between the long-term economic focus that economists would like us to have and the short-termism, short-sightedness that's embedded in, pol in politics today. But let me start by giving you some flavor for why it is people believe that democracy is under siege. In no particular order voter participation is declined. So the fact that many of you in here, I'm assuming, can, by show of hands, how many of you are British? I'm hoping that you have voted today, because I hope you know that there are local elections going on today. I know some of you might not actually live here. Um, but I hope you've either sent your vote in, 
or ha um, the fact that you're here means that you should have already voted or you're going to vote by 10 o'clock this evening. But voter participation rates have plummeted in the West. In the United States, voter participation rates in the 1960s and 70s, particularly in the, late, uh, in the early 60s, excuse me, were around mid-60% and even higher. Today, the participation rate, and over the last several decades in the United States, is down to around 50% for presidential elections. For poor income households, where the average income is about $30,000 per year, the participation rates are as low as 30%. And for many countries in Europe, we see these very low participation rates, 42%, 52%, etc. Clearly, this type of low participation from voters is really quite far away from the view of one man, one vote, which was the mantra around liberal democracy. A second problem is that money has seeped into the political process. In the United States in 2016, according to a New York Times um, article, 158 families, just 158 families, were responsible for 50% of the political contributions that were made to the presidential candidates. But worse than that, the money that has been going to lobbying has doubled since the year 2000. In 2000, approximately $1 billion was spent from lobbying, from corporations and businesses on, for, um, towards politicians. Today, that number is over $3 billion. And in fact, it's higher than the amount of money that was spent on the presidential election, which is around $2 billion. But worse than that, also people have very little faith in the political process. A Pew survey in the United States that recently came out suggests that over 80% of Americans do not believe that the federal government regularly does what is right. The World Economic Forum has put out a report recently stating that citizens around the world have, believe that authoritarian governments are better placed to deliver economic success than democratic governments. Freedom House, a political uh, think tank based in Washington, D.C., has put out a report saying that for the past 10 years, in fact 11 years, on a sequential basis, political freedoms have gone down every single year um, around the world, including in the United States in the last couple of years. Things are so bad in the United States, which is in many respects the vanguard of liberal democracy, particularly since it is the largest economy in GDP terms, that the EIU, the Economist Intelligence Unit, recently downgraded the United States from being a full democracy to being one that they describe as a flawed democracy. Part of the reason for this concern is that the three key pillars of democracy, the executive, which is essentially the office of the head of state, the legislature, as well as the judiciary, are now viewed as not functioning effectively. In terms of the executive in the United States, we know that executive orders, these unilateral orders used by the president, have become much more frequent, not just with President Trump, but actually since President Clinton. Almost every year we've seen an increase through President Obama and um, President Bush as well. The legislature is characterized by, by gridlock and their deep concerns that actually the, uh, the degree of combat between different rivaling parties is far beyond what the forefathers would have expected as acceptable discourse and debate in the chamber that is a chamber of legislatures. Worse than that, the judiciary, particularly the criminal justice system in the United States, is not viewed as fair and equal. 
there is a sense that politically and through the criminal justice system that there's one political system or one judicial system, I should say, for people who are white and or rich, and there's a completely different judicial system for people who are black, Latino, Asian, and um, who are indigent. And that further complicates the faith in the, in the political process. One final point is that according to Freedom House, again, their view is that although many countries around the world are considered democratic, many of those democracies, in fact, 70% of those democracies, which is essentially the majority of democracies, are illiberal democracies and largely indistinguishable from countries that are authoritarian states. If I haven't managed to depress you enough, mm-hmm. I'd like to spend a bit of time talking to you about why it is actually urgent for us to address this situation. I'd like to spend the next few minutes going through what I believe are the key six headwinds that are threatening to append the global economy, and why, although these factors are all long-term, as I mentioned earlier, and deeply entrenched in the global economy, there's a risk that the short-termism that we're seeing in politics means that we're less likely to address these problems. I'm going to quickly list them out, and then I'll talk to you a little bit about each of them separately. In no particular order, again, technology and the risk of the jobless underclass, what that might mean in terms of the advances in technology for opportunities for young people in particular. The second point is around demographic shifts, population growth rates, but also the quality of the workforce. The third point is around income inequality and what that might mean not just for incomes but also for our ability to access um, health care and, and uh, education, but also politics and how that might play out in the political sphere, especially given that there's evidence that money is buying politics. Then I'll focus a little bit on natural resource scarcity, the global imbalances between demand for natural resources and supply of, uh, of resources and commodities that are, short t- excuse me, that are, are shrinking and uh, depleting um, and, and finite. I'll then finally speak about uh, debt, the amount of debt that the global economy is running with right now, particularly in different nations like Britain, and finally end off talking about productivity. So those are the six items. In regards to technology and the risk of the jobless underclass, I attended a conference, the Jackson Hole Conference for the Federal Reserve in 2013, and the mainstay paper that people were focused on was a paper that came out of uh, Oxford Martin School, which was done by two economists who basically predicted that they thought that by 2030 or thereabout, 47% of the jobs in the United States would be disintermediated or would would disappear because of automation. Today, three to four million Americans, mainly in the truck driving business, are likely to be out of work because of technology. And in 80% of the country, 80% of the states, so 40 out of 50 states in America, the majority of young people, um, ages between 18 and 54, um, are in some form of driving business. So either they're delivery or in taxi cabs, etc. And again, a very clear target uh, and at risk uh, for disintermediation because of automation. Bank of America has estimated that 30 to 40 percent of jobs could go in the banking sector. I know people don't really like bankers anymore, so usually I get a chair here. But 30 to 40 percent of banking jobs could also be disintermediated because of blockchain, but also other innovations in technology. It's important for us to set in context why this is such a big risk all of a sudden. 
And I should have also said earlier on that all of the headwinds that I'm talking about were actually quite catalytic in driving economic growth in the years ahead, in the years past. Um, but they have turned into headwinds, and it's very often, and, and I'll stress as we go on, very often because they have become so acute or the speed with which they're growing um, has happened in a, in a very uh, aggressive way, in, in a way that's never happened before. But let's go back in history and think about the way the structure of economies has changed, um, certainly since 1900. In 1900, 60% of Americans were involved in agriculture. Today, that number is less than 2% of the American workforce. And we know what happened. Americans, from a whole range of push and pull factors, moved out of agriculture into manufacturing and from manufacturing into services, which is where today around 80% of Americans are involved in the, the workforce. Um, very similar numbers are, are true here in Britain as well. About 18% are involved in, uh, in some form of uh, manufacturing. The question before us is what happens if we see similar shifts in uh, workforce out of, uh, out of services because of automation? What happens to that population? Where will people find jobs? According to John Maynard Keynes, in the 1930s, the British economist wrote that he believed that by 2030 we would have a 15-hour work week. That's, this is another point where people usually cheer because they think, whoa, we won't have to work a lot. Um, and, however, he did also ask the question, well, what will we be doing if we're only working 15 hours uh, a week? And he said he hoped we'd be pondering God and not killing each other. Today, many countries around the world are grappling with this issue. And I think the fundamental point um, we, sh we are concerned about as not only economists but I think public policymakers is there is not another sector that could likely absorb um, the, uh, the unskilled but also increasingly highly skilled workers in the manner in which technology has helped um, absorb different, different uh, workers in, in previous generations. So this is a very big problem um, for countries around the world, and it will be interesting to see uh, how that may play out. One point worth thinking about is that it may not matter uh, because of innovations in uh, the costs of technology, going, that's forced things like communication, food, and transportation down. We may not need to work as many hours as uh, we're working today, but nevertheless, there's still a lot of people who are threatened, and the transition to a new equilibrium where we work less is something that's on the minds of many people. The second point I want to spend a bit of time on is demographics. And I often say that the issue around demographics to me is potentially the most interesting and fascinating area. Today, there are about 7.5 billion people on the planet. And according to the United Nations, the world's population will continue to grow at a clip until 2100, when there will be approximately 11 billion people. And it's only at that time that the world's population will start to go down. India is adding approximately 1 million people a month to its population. And globally, we're adding approximately 80 million people a year, which is the size of Germany, um, to the global population. It took approximately 125 years to go from 1 billion people to 2 billion people. And it's taken just 50 years to go from 3 billion people to 7.5 billion people. The reason I emphasize this is that we are in an incredibly unique place and time in the world's population um, growth. In fact, demographers estimate and argue 
that the speed with which the world's population is growing today is something that has never been seen or recorded in history or prehistory and will never be seen again once the world's population slows down in 2100. But it's not just about the quantity of the world's population that's growing, which I might add, as somebody who was born and raised in Africa, Africa will represent by 2070 an estimated 40% and potentially growing towards a 50% mark very quickly by 2075. So think about that for a moment. Half of the world's population could be coming from the African continent with significant implications if we're not engaged in that continent in a, in a, a more positive, uh, positive way. But as I said, it's not just about the sheer quantity of the world's population, it's also about the quality of the workforce. And there are many statistics that are quite worrying. According to the OECD, which is based out in Paris, but it's a club of essentially the world's wealthiest and advanced economies, they estimate that this generation of Americans, for the first time in the history of the United States since 1776, is going to be less educated than the preceding generation. It's never happened before. But there also are real concerns expressed by McKinsey, the global consulting firm, who argues that, according to them, the underinvestment in education of minority groups in the United States, blacks and Latinos in particular, is so acute that by 2050, when those groups become the majority um, of the population in the United States, they are already the majority in big states like California, Texas, Florida. But when they become the majority in the country in 2050 or thereabouts, it would put the United States in a permanent recession because of underinvestment in education. The OECD puts out a report called the PISA report, the Program of International Student Assessment, which is essentially them going around um, to many different countries around the world and testing young people between the ages of 9 and 14 in mathematics, in science, and in reading. According to those studies, which have been going on for many years now, Western countries used to be in the top ranks, number one, two, and three, but over the recent period, they've actually slid down to number 27, 28, 29, even 30 in terms of ranks. This is actually unacceptable. We need Western countries to continue to push the innovation and to drive the innovation that can help solve some of the world's most seemingly intractable problems, whether it's health, education, disease, but not just, uh, not just poverty, but also uh, issues around ecological and environmental concerns. The, the education problem has become so acute that even in this country, there's a term called the NEETS, no education, employment, or training. There are approximately one million of those young people between the ages of 18 and 25 that have no um, long-term prospects for employment. And it's largely because of this mismatch between the skill sets that they have and the opportunities um, in a, a, a more rapidly uh, gig economy um, and, and technology for 21st century. The next item I'd like to spend some time on is income inequality. When I was doing my PhD, nobody talked about income inequality. We always assumed if you can create economic growth, income inequality would be naturally solved. But here we are today, and I would argue that not only in the political sphere, but also amongst economists, income inequality has raced up to be uh, certainly in the top three or five um, biggest agenda items. What I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time very quickly explaining to you why today that puzzle has become very difficult for economists and for public policymakers. So first of all, don't listen to anybody who says they know the answer. 
um, people on the left, more liberal or um, more democratic uh, parties, tend to say tax and redistribution is the solution. Um, and we know very, that's a very popular approach in, in Western Europe. Um, unfortunately, that has not helped to stop the slide or the widening of income inequality within different countries. On the other hand, we have people who are more conservative, more right-wing, more uh, Republican in terms of their approach. And they would argue that trickle-down economics, keeping taxes low, basically encouraging businesses and innovation to hire people would increase people's, people's salaries, and over time that would help people to converge into higher levels and close the income inequality gap. Although that might be compelling intellectually as a practical matter, that has also not worked in terms of trying to slow down income inequality. Today, social mobility has been hurt incredibly over the last several decades. In fact, a lot of data in the United States shows that if you were born in a low-income family and you worked hard, you got an education, the probability that you will move into another, a higher income generation or class um, has actually gone down by 50% over the last several decades in the United States. Again, similar figures we see across Europe. But perhaps most disturbing for somebody like myself who loves to travel around the world and hear what's going on is the fact that the United States, which is the largest country by GDP terms, which has democracy at the heart of its political system, and it has, it has adopted a market capitalist approach in terms of its economic ethos, has roughly the same Gini coefficient, which is the measure of income inequality, as China, the second largest economy, which has deprioritized democracy and has adopted state capitalism as its approach. These two countries, completely different political systems, completely different economic systems, have roughly the same Gini coefficients around 0.45. Perhaps worse still is that over the last few decades, China's income inequality within its country has actually improved and that of the United States has actually worsened. According to um, Oxfam reports, today the eight wealthiest men, and they're all men, have more money than the bottom 50% of the rest of the world. We have to figure out how we feel about living in that sort of a society. And just last year, there was a fantastic book that came out by Walter Scheidel. Please buy his book after you've bought my book. (laughs) But Walter Scheidel has done an amazing survey over 3,000 years of history um, of the world, and he's gone and looked at different episodes of income inequality, and he has a very sobering conclusion, which is that in virtually all those instances, um, we solved the problem of income inequality through some form of social unrest, political uh, instability, and even, dare I say it, revolutions. So income inequality, I believe, is something we need to focus on and to figure out, I would argue, investment in education has been uh, lacking, and this issue around social mobility is at the heart of the solution. I'll quickly go through the last few. Natural resource scarcity. I visited China a couple of years ago, um, and in a meeting with the, the head of state there, President Xi Jinping, he mentioned that one of the biggest concerns that he had was around natural resource scarcity. The fact, on the one hand, in terms of demand, the world's population and the population of China were increasing the amount of uh, demand on potable, uh, potable water, arable land, energy, and minerals, and that this imbalance between this urbanization and greater demand and greater wealth in the emerging markets was not being met by all of these supply side, uh, supply side of these commodities, which are scarce, finite, and depleting. 
it's clear already that not just the scarcity issue, but also the ecological issues, the environmental concerns around climate change are putting pressure around governments to manage expectations of people around the world, particularly in the emerging market, that they cannot live like the average Westerner. Um, and that is a real political concern that's brewing and has to be addressed. Debt, the sheer amount of debt, you'll be familiar in a world where we're increasing interest rates, it's becoming a much bigger concern, a much bigger risk. But suffice it to say, the amount of debt um, is a problem. Virtually every class of debt, government debt, corporate debt, household debt, credit card debt, student loan debt, auto loan debt, is now over $1 trillion each in the United States. And even here in Britain, we know the story of how acute and how problematic the debt burden is. We do not know at this stage how we're going to get out of this amount of debt. But the political ramifications of this amount of debt um, and whether in a world where growth is slow and slowing and far below the 7% per year that we need for growth in order to double per capita incomes really creates a lot of pause for us in terms of how and whether we'll be able to repay the debt. As a consequence, there are rumors of potentially inflating debt or defaulting on debt as alternatives, and those are deeply concerning and worrisome um, for the global economy. The final point in terms of the economic headwinds is around uh, productivity. People who have studied economics in the room will know that productivity explains approximately 60% of why one country grows and another one does not grow. The other 40% is split between labor and capital. And yet, in virtually every single advanced economy, productivity has been on the decline over the last 10 years. And this is a puzzle because we don't understand why productivity, essentially how effective, how quickly you're able to take raw inputs and convert them into outputs. Why would that be slowing down at a time when technology advances are are rapidly speeding up? This is, again, one of the big puzzles amongst policymakers. And given its central importance for driving economic growth, I believe will continue to be a big issue. Perhaps during Q&A we can talk a little bit about why it might be the case. Some people argue that it's because of mismeasurement. I've written a number of articles on this. In fact, I published an article in the Financial Times on this very topic. Um, But there is a more cynical view that argues that in a democratic society, people don't feel like they need to work that much because they've figured out that by by voting or promising to vote for for elected officials, they can receive goods and services. And that trade-off... where where governments are very rationally courting and catering to the voter by giving them goods and services means that people reduce the amount of work and effort that they put in, um, and that's why we might be seeing a decline in productivity. Let me spend the last few minutes that I have before um, we take it to Q&A talking to you about some of the solutions that I propose in this book. The first half of this book essentially summarizes and goes into greater detail on these headwinds. Um, But as I proposed to you earlier, I'm essentially trying to solve two problems uh, in terms of of this book and two problems that are at the heart of the challenge to democracy. One is legitimacy. So even here at Brexit, there's a lot of skepticism around whether or not there was a a legitimate vote. Did the voters really know what they were being asked? Um, You've heard, I'm sure, that um, some people speculate that actually the day after the uh, Brexit vote, uh, the most uh, Googled question was, what is the EU? 
whether or not that's, I, I don't know, I'm, I've heard from different people that some people say it's not true, it's fake news, but whatever the case, that is a deep concern that voters may be going to determine the, the, the future of a country and they may not actually know what they're, they're voting for. But it's also the proposals in this book are trying to solve this issue of myopia that I just described to you. This difference, the schism, the mismatch between long-term economic problems that I've just outlined for you, um, which are intergenerational, and the short-term myopia of politicians who are constantly trying to persuade and seduce today's voter with very little consideration for voters of the future and the consequences of their actions um, for future, future generations. I propose 10 proposals. As I mentioned, I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, a few things worth thinking about. Each one of them has some precedent in the world today. So when I throw out an example of one of the proposals, I will also try to remember to tell you where in the world such a proposal is, uh, is already implemented or being experimented on. But also it's important to remember that this is not about wholesale consumption of all 10 of the proposals. In fact, there's a chart to show where your country ranks um, based on the 10 proposals. I'll tell you very disturbingly, um, the United States is ranked one out of 10. So that says to me that there's a lot of scope for improvement. But it's not about wholesale consumption of all of these proposals. It's about thinking about how we can actually improve democracy at a time when the skepticism around this political system is running high. It's also very important for people to understand I am not interested in countries that are blatantly non-democratic. That is not of interest. We've written volumes on that. People have written articles and books. This is about democracy. I was keen to find a book where I could say what are the menu of choices for us to improve it, and I couldn't find one, so I decided to write one. So six of the proposals are targeting the politicians. Four of the proposals are tar targeting the voter. Some of the proposals, to give you some sense um, in terms of the politicians, one of the proposals is to increase the pay of the politicians. Yes, you heard me right, increase their pay, but also force them to justify their compensation. Uh, this example I give is um, the model that is used in Singapore. In Singapore, the head of state is paid $1.4 million a year. Um, it is definitely the highest paid uh, head of state in the world. But the ministers, which I think is very interesting, also earned 30 to 40 percent bonuses every year, depending on how certain metrics or improvements from GDP, inflation being kept down, life expectancy increasing, health outcomes improving, they get paid based on that. With the clause that in years to come, so 10 years or 15 years from now, if they look back and they say, wait a second, that wasn't real GDP growth, these guys were fudging the numbers and inflating the economy, they can claw back on that compensation. <laughs> and in that regard, it's very similar to what we see in the private sector. Um, and more and more we're seeing innovation in the private sector. I don't see why we shouldn't consider that for public sector too. So pay them more, um, but also make sure that we shut the door, meaning they cannot go to the public sector um, Make, you know, make public policy that is suitable for different companies so that with the eye that hmm, when I'm done here, I can go and join that company. We want to close those types of loopholes and force policymakers to be better citizens and, in fact, attract more talent. Another proposal I have is extending terms. So I mentioned to you that there's this mismatch, the short-termism in politics and the long-term long -term economic challenges. Well, why don't we close the gap by extending the terms of politicians? Mexico. 
has one term uh, for the president, has six years, which is closer to what a business cycle might look like. Um, in Brazil, senators are allowed to sit for up to nine years, and you don't have to run into this problem of constantly having to face an election, as we do in the United States, where elections are run every two years, um, four years for the presidency, but two years um, for Congress. Um, I think that's incredibly disruptive. Um, I think that also in today's world, um, having some way of, uh, of ensuring um, that we, we closer match these uh, two different aspects, I think it would be much more effective. Minimum standards for politicians. In the 1960s in this country, the average age of a politician was around 62 years old. Um, and if you went in to see with the parliamentarians, they had very varied backgrounds. They were farmers, teachers, lawyers, doctors. When they were sitting in parliament and designing policy, they knew what they were talking about. There are numerous studies that I cite in the book that now show that the average age in many departments of government in this country is now around 40 years old. And virtually everyone who's involved, um, well, not everyone, but a lot of people, many, probably the majority, in fact, I think it is the majority, um, in cabinet, but also in, uh, in the parliamentarian space, are, um, are, have no additional experience except being professional politicians. I think that's a great disservice to us um, and what we would like to see in terms, of, uh, in terms of better participation rates. In terms of the voter, one of the things that I talk about is mandatory voting. That will certainly target the issue of voter participation rates. Um, there are about 27 countries around the world that have voter, vo mandatory voting. Australia, uh, Belgium, many countries across South America. And their participation rates, of course, are much higher in the 90s. That type of an idea is considered incredibly antithetical to the view of freedom of choice. Um, in places like the United States, people gasp when I say, suggest that they should have uh, support their civic responsibility and be mand mandated to vote. But I do think that we, because we want two things to happen, we want as many people who are eligible, eligible to vote to vote, but we also want people to be as knowledgeable as possible, I think we should put that on the list and make sure that we have a situation where um, more people vote and participate in these political judgments. The final point that I'll talk about, and then we'll open it up for discussion, is about weighted voting. And this, um, I've had a few reviews. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times have reviewed the book, and people tend to zone in on this because I think they just, they don't understand English, so unfortunately they haven't read the book properly. Um, this is not about saying that people with education um, or in an elite, an elite class or who are wealthier um, should be given a chance to, to only, the, only be given the opportunity to vote and everybody else should not. That is not what I'm proposing. I am talking about weighted voting, which, by the way, is being discussed in Switzerland, it's being discussed in Canada, and the idea is very simple. It basically it takes the view that we want people, particularly in referendums and referenda around the world, uh, I think is an easier way to find this palatable, much more than in uh, a general election. But the idea is that we want people who actually understand what is going on to have a bit of a bigger weight or a weight of, uh, bigger vote than people who don't really understand. So I'll take myself as an example. Frankly, I don't know what's going on in the NHS. I have no idea. I would believe, I strongly believe, that people who are doctors, nurses, and who work in that space on a day-to-day -day basis must have a better view as to whether if we give them one additional pound, we should spend that on buying x-rays or beds or medicine. And so the proposal for discussion is, should we not give them a bigger weight in decisions that are around something like health care or the provision of medicine? 
Similarly, you could think about that in education. I don't know whether we need more uh, blackboards. I'm sure many people in this room are too young to know what a blackboard is. But for the older ones in this room, I don't know whether they should spend money on a blackboard or they should pay more teachers' uh, salaries. I simply don't know. But it seems to me that people who are involved in the education space may have a, a bigger view. And weighted voting doesn't have to be about expertise. It could also be about age. One of the discussions that I I put in here is about whether or not people who are older, who have had a more seasoned experience, they learn more about uh, how the world works, how the economy works. Maybe their vote should count more um, in the case of the Brexit vote than perhaps young people who are still not really sure about how the world works. You could argue to the opposite. You could argue that young people have a much bigger um, risk and not much longer exposure in their lives to the consequences of Brexit, and therefore we should give them a bigger weight than, than older people. Because I'm older, I'm going to be 50 in February. I'm going to go with the older vote. <laughs> anyway, so let me conclude by just reading one sentence. That's at the beginning of the book. This is a quote that comes directly from Jean-Claude Juncker, who many of you might know is the current president of the European Commission. He said, we all know what to do. He's talking about politicians. We just don't know how to get reelected after we've done it. And I think that sums up the problems with democracy. Thank you for your attention. I look forward to your question. Okay. So now you have a chance. I told you that she would be provocative and, and to come to university and say that, say, say, um, that young people should have less uh, vote is, 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 is truly provocative. So, so um, the rules of the game, very simple. Uh, questions, not long uh, pronouncements. Um, name and uh, uh, your affiliation. We'll take questions uh, three at a time, and, and so please. Hello, uh, thank you for being here. First of all, my name is Ivy Langat. I'm from Kenya. I study African development as an MSc here um, at the LSE. Um, and um, again, your book sounds really interesting. Um, I noticed that you focus a lot on the US and the w- Western countries. And I was wondering, um, and you mentioned earlier that there's a need for the West to be innovative and democratic, but you know, as a person who's studying African development and you know, in the development discourse where we're ta- taking a lot of learnings from uh, the East Asia and how they've managed to like, develop growth, I was wondering what, you, what do you think about that and how applicable are your um, recommendations in the book to non-Western countries? Thank you. Thank you. Over there. Uh, hi. Thank you so much. Um, I'm a student here in uh, Masters in uh, Media and Development. Uh, I come from Africa, Middle East, Egypt. Uh, my question is related broadly to your experience in microeconomics and economics in general uh, in relation to the World Bank specifically. Uh, what is your insight on the recent work of the World Bank in countries like in Africa and in the Middle East and the call for uh, reform in subsidy lifting and its effect in, uh, on people. So I wanted to know your critical um, opinion about this issue. Thank you. Okay. Over there. 
I'm Kate Rusing. I was a LSE general course student in the 80s, and um, I do have a North American accent. But I'm interested in your perspective on development in Africa and how Africa compares as you look at um, those issues on for both voters and politicians and what levers you think will have the most impact in helping Africa develop. Okay, we take those. I think they grouped very nicely on, on how do you apply this to... I realize I'm never going to ever, ever live down dead aid. Um, it's like, by the way, dead aid is 10 years old in January, and I'm working on a, a new forward to the book. But it's just so interesting to me that it doesn't matter if I talk about anything else. I might have to start talking about, I don't know, something quite random like women's fashion, and they'll still be like, well, what about African aid? Um, anyway, so you're absolutely right to the first question. I deliberately moved away from um, developing countries, and it's largely because really the the vanguard of, uh, of democracy and the people who go around saying you need democracy are really from the West. And I thought it was very interesting to adopt quite arrogantly the view that I'm Alexis de Tocqueville of uh, 2018 and a foreigner going to countries and saying, well, what's working here and what's not working? So I definitely took that lens. Um, also, I will say that um, I'm quite biased. I'm a, uh, my PhD is in economics, as I mentioned, and therefore my focus is uh, my belief in my heart of hearts and my training suggests that um, economics comes before um, politics. And so um, there's a lot of studies. There's a great study by Pshavorsky, which I talk about in the book, um, who has modeled, he's a professor at NYU, he's modeled the probability of democracy surviving at different, different per capita levels of income. And his main thesis is that until you have a large enough, um, uh, high enough per capita income, um, unadjusted for inflation in his work is about $6,000 per capita, until you get there, um, until you have a critical mass of a middle class, you can't have a democracy that survives because ultimately you're constantly going to have a you know, backlash and, and populism and, and fractions um, that um, undermine the political process. And essentially the middle class will not be there to hold the government accountable. Um, and so one of the concerns that's emerging in the book around this uh, point is that to the extent that the middle class is shrinking in Western democracies, I think that this um, basically shines this point into light. Um, you're, you're right that, uh, you know, I, I have not focused on, on African democracy here, but it's, it's quite deliberate for the reasons I just outlined. Um, what are the lessons that can be learned? Well, that essentially to me, that we need to focus first on getting the economics right, but also that democracy is not perfect. And there are a lot of ideological, fundamental beliefs around democracy, um, such as uh, that, that might be antithetical to uh, some of the, the way that in which the world is, is shaped today. So let me give you an example really quickly. Western societies really fundamentally believes in this idea that, um, the, that the individual sacrosanct, that individual choice and the, the, the rights of a singular human being um, are to be protected at all costs. And that it doesn't matter what a human being does, they can do whatever they like to themselves um, as long as they don't impinge on the freedoms of somebody else. But, you know, that might be great, but the fact of the matter is that my individual choices do impact um, on society as a whole. And I mean, this is quite a different view from something or the thought process that might be in China, where for them, the most important thing is society um, and community. And they're desperately worried about how um, the behavior of an individual, I mean, I can go out and get drunk and become reckless. Um, yeah, that sounds like I'm doing it just to myself, but actually the consequences of obesity, of, um, of, of me having tons of lots of children, there are costs and consequences for society as a whole. And I think in, in the minds of the uh, 
of uh, other alternative uh, models, they would say that we need to factor in those costs and maybe curb the behaviors of individuals. So my point simply is with regards to the African situation, I think most emerging markets as well, the focus should be on economics first um, before we start thinking about the the challenges of some of these other uh, political problems. I'm not suggesting, just to be absolutely clear, that we should go and cancel democracy. It's already in these places, but I do worry a lot about their viability and the volatility, especially given what we're seeing in in the West today. The second question was around subsidies um, and the experience of the world. But to be honest, I don't know what specifically you're referring to. Um, But I I will say that, uh, you know, I think, and Eric mentioned this point, I think there's been a lot of innovation in the last decade on how to engage um, you know, I, I will say it's funny that something like subsidies keeps coming up. When I was a student, probably around the age of many of you in this room um, in Zambia, we had an attempted coup in the country, and it was because university students um, were actually rioting um, against the subsidy uh, removal in, in the country uh, at that time. And so subsidies have been on the agenda for a long period of time. I worry a lot in a world where countries like the United States, but also in Europe where they love subsidies. I mean, you've heard about the common agriculture subsidy program, but also farm subsidies, in a world where there's not free trade, um, I think that's a real issue that we're worth, worth thinking about. Um, and then the last question was uh, around uh, the questions of, of uh, voters and uh, politicians regarding development in Africa. And I think your, your question was really essentially, just remind me, because I've just jotted down a few points, but I can't remember exactly what it was. It's my age is showing. <laughs> Right. Yes. Um, so I think it, I think that the I, for me, what's really important and always has been important is knowledge, voter knowledge, uh, which is why I think civic education to me is baffling that it's not on the curriculum. And they'll teach you to woodworking, like I'm ever going to build a chair, um, but they don't want to teach they don't want to teach you financial skills and they don't want to teach you about civics um, in, in lessons. When I grew up in Zambia, we had civics on the agenda. So to me, that's critically important. And one of the proposals is in the book in more detail is to have civics lessons. Um, in, in high school. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't know what the difference between the legislature, the judiciary, and the executive is. And that's not, that's, that, I think, is problematic for society where the economy and the fanat- capitalist society as well as democracy are such a, at the heart of the system. Um, as foreigners, and foreigners in this room will know, you have to take a civics test in order to pass, to get a visa or uh, to get a, uh, a passport. It's the same in the United States. If it's good, you know, if, if immigrants, by the way, I think most of the immigrants would say it's very easy test, but nevertheless, it's a test, and I just think, well, if we're required to do a test um, to show engagement, to show commitment, why should um, the the citizens themselves not care enough about the civics of their country to actually focus on some of these issues? So I think that's where I would pick. I would say voter education, to me, is the most important thing. Okay, I'll take a man now, so... Yes, my name is Stefano Bonfa, and I'm involved in strategies. So my question is, do you think that a solution could be on thinking about data-driven economy also in developing countries? So this concept of data that revolutionizes all the sector could be, let's say, tested also in developing countries, especially in developing countries. In developing countries, all the aid has been coming from top-down governments, never has been target, let's say, what is the real problem. And understanding the real problem using the data could be a solution. Now we have the technology. We have the data also. So it's a question of convincing 
the politician of using and implementing with the right direction. But this happens not only in Africa, happens also in Europe. This is the biggest problem why Europe does not grow. Thank you. I love that question, and I'll tell you why. Because I was um, recently at a dinner where um, Michael Bloomberg, uh, who was the three-time mayor of New York City, said um, that there are, for him, when he became mayor, he had 50 different units reporting to him, sanitation, roadworks, education in New York City, etc. And he realized, I can't run each of these businesses, these separate units, so the best thing for me to do is to hire 50 people, each of them to manage the business, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to instill in them four principles that they have to make sure that they focus on. And those four principles were no corruption, forward-leaning, data-driven, and measured outcomes. And he said, if you come to me, you're responsible for firemen. If you come to me and say, I have been focused on no corruption, I have forward-leaning, data-driven, and measured outcomes, that would actually be the way to solve. I will never disagree with you. Yes, you want to ask more question, another question or <laughs> related question? Can I add that? What is missing there is the strategies. And who is implementing the strategies? I think it should be not anymore the government because we have already experienced yes. by the private sector. Yes, well, I think that's true. But, I mean, we've, again, that's another age-old debate. How big should the government be? Should the private sector? And I think, um, you know, the, the truth is we've moved from Washington consensus from big government to small government. We're now in a debate where actually it's corporations are taking on a bigger utility function. I happen to sit on a number of corporate boards where we're saying the utility function, the responsibility is not just to maximize shareholder value, it's also about making sure that we are good citizens in different societies. So you're right that it's not just falling on the responsibility of government, but the issue of data-driven, I think, is critically important as well. Okay. Uh, behind, behind you there. Yeah. Um, hi, Demirza. Um, Zambian like yourself and British as well. Um, I'd like to find out um, how you think the proposals you've made will affect ethnic minority people in the West. Um, I think the examples, for instance, of or your suggestion, for instance, of higher education leading to more rights to vote, how would that affect ethnic minority people who are perhaps less educated but also less... Um, have less access to things like ID cards. For instance, today in the local elections, there are some trials of, of um, voters producing ID cards before they can vote. And one of the criticisms for that is that it's adversely affecting people from ethnic minorities because some people don't have passports or driver's license and so on. So how do you think that will affect people from ethnic minorities? Let's, let's collect uh, a few questions. So, Hi, Dambasa. I'm Desola. Sorry, can I stand? Hi. Um, uh, just graduated um, from, with a degree in economics and currently doing data at Barclays. Um, I'm Nigerian, so my question is going to be again about Africa. But um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I was going to ask about one of your headwinds, technology. So um, Africa hasn't actually quite faced the shift from having more of an agricultural sector to manufacturing to services, which the West is now currently facing, where um, most of it is in services. So what opportunities do you think um, African democracies and economies can learn from not having to face that sort of um, social impact of shifting the types of jobs available? Um, and also as well, in the model that you refer to, that kind of... Um, places 
productivity as the main explanation for economic growth. Um, I think that model also heavily attributes technology to that. So how would you say, um, how would Africa learn from that and what strategies again um, do you think Africa should undergo to kind of tap into that and learn from the West? Thank you so much for your talk. My name is Emily Wolf. I'm an LSE uh, master student. A book recently came out, I think it's called The Globalist by Slobodian. Uh, I might be pronouncing that uh, incorrectly, but it describes the rise of neoliberalism in Central Europe following uh, World War I, initially with Mises and then with Hayek, and it describes how Hayek visited Chile and made a comment that he preferred liberal authoritarianism over illiberal democracy. And uh, thinking about the presentation that you've given, some of the proposals, uh, and your preference for a economics over politics, um, I was wondering, how do you relate to this strand of neoliberal thought? And when we talk about fixing democracy in this context, are we not talking about lessening uh, democracy? Thank you. Okay. Okay. I think you have a handful sure. there. Yes. Okay. So um, in terms of ethnic minorities, I, you know, again, I really want to stress this because I, this is the, my concern is people are going to walk out of here and say, oh, my God, she said people who are less educated can't vote. I am not saying that. This is about engagement. This is not about education. Please, please, please understand. I don't want to be misquoted. And already um, some people who claim to be highly educated are already misquoting me. This is not about that. This is about ensuring that those two things happen. Number one, we have as many voters as possible, and number two, we make sure that people are as knowledgeable as possible when they get to the polls. Um, I do not like anything that discourages uh, voters from voting. This is the first thing I said to you guys. I hope you voted. If you haven't, make sure you get there before 10 o'clock. But also... I'm not that dumb that I don't realize that I would be the first person, because I'm a black woman from Africa, who would be disenfranchised if I started to, to, to support that kind of thinking. So this is really about voter engagement. We want to see minorities at the polls engaged in voting. Yes, you're absolutely right that there are deep concerns around IDs, uh, gerrymandering. I talk about you know political um, border restructuring, which is very common. Rotten boroughs, which we've talked about um, going back into the into uh, it talks about in the book, um, are, are issues that we have seen in the past um, have actually hurt um, the vote, and we don't want, we don't want to repeat any of that. And in fact, even today, we're constantly fighting on these issues, and I think we should continue to fight um, on these issues. But I am an eternal optimist. Um, you know, go back to the 1700s in the United States and even in this country. Um, you know, people say to me very often, oh, well, you know, democracy's really worked. I was like, it was not liberal. You know, it was only, it was only recently, it was only 1971 when women were given the right to vote in Switzerland. I mean, it's not been that long. Minority groups in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So there, but think about going back to the 1700s, what the discussion might have been. Most people have said, we can't really give women the vote. We can't really give poor the, the poor the vote. We can't give blacks the vote. Well, guess what? It's possible. So this is about innovation. It's about trying to push the boundaries and make things better. So I, I really want to stress again, we want to reward people for being engaged and active and really trying to participate in the electoral process. This has got nothing to do with people's lofty educations or how much money they have or where they have a home. And I, and I really want us to make sure that we can push on that. Um, 
the question around technology as a headwind and what should Africa be learning from the West? Well, it's a, it's a very difficult um, question in many respects because uh, being an agriculture country uh, has never really solved an economic problem. I and mean, think about the United States. They're the largest economy in the world, and they have 2% of people working in agriculture. Um, and, and so that should tell us a lot. It should say um, that we need to actually invest in other skills that can make us more competitive and make young people more competitive in a global economy. The, you know, the, the other point I would just make um, is, is that part of the problem is that in, in the African context, I believe, is that we're not that engaged with each other on the continent. Um, you know, people would kill to have the populations that we have. 60 to 70 percent of the young below the age of 25. Um, many populations now, if you look at Hans Rosling, late Hans Rosling's work, um, you know, you can see that the path is towards uh, a much young, younger population in Africa. But what are we doing with that population? Um, there's still real issues around uh, education and involvement. And in a world where technology means that we, the world's become much more democratic in terms of social media and engagement, it seems to me that there are other skills um, and, and other opportunities that we're not tapping into just yet. I, to be honest, I'll be a very candid. I can't really, I can speculate at a very general level of what those jobs might look like. Um, but the truth of the matter is that I'm not in that area. But, you know, I will, I'm not au fait, as au fait in, in, um, as many of you will be because you're younger with, with issues around technology. But I will say that um, this obsession with the nation state being the person, and this is picking up on this gentleman's comment earlier, it's not about the state. I mean, in many places, 80% of work in places like the United States and in Britain are employed by small businesses. So that's where the, the rub is. And there are, of course, issues in terms of how do those small businesses capitalize themselves, how do they hire, etc. But we need to get out of that mentality that somehow the government is coming to save us, because the truth is these governments are under a lot of strain. Um, the question around neoliberalism. So, you know, one of the things I absolutely abhor, and I think this is why um, economists are always trying to, um, to, to kill me, is that, um, or to at least kick me out of the, the subject, is I don't really like ideology. Um, I think that we get so hung up on saying, well, this is exactly how the world is supposed to be. And if there's one thing I can tell you, that's exactly the way the world does not, um, does, uh, does not operate or does operate. Um, I'm driven much more by a quote by Mark Twain. It's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And I think that's really important. We get so obsessed with neoliberalism. I don't really care about those tags. I don't even really know what they mean. I, I have a rough idea. Um, but what I, what I care about um, more is, you know, what, what is the fate of the democratic process um, and, and I think you picked up on some of the themes that I think are important right now. We have in this, on this continent, in the European context, we have countries where people have been elected democratically in Hungary, in Poland, and they get into office and then they start talking about becoming more illiberal. Um, you know, where does this, all of this take us? And I, I guess uh, to, to answer your question in a long-winded way, I would say um, my concern is that we'll end up with one of two extremes. We'll either end up in a more populist world where governments are constantly focused on pandering to what the voter wants immediately. And I think that already places like Italy are in that space. The middle ground has, has collapsed. We've got left and right um, polarization. And I think that that means that we move further away from the economic headwinds because the governments are simply drawn to and are dealing with the, the issues at hand. The other extreme is that we end up, end up more in a plutocracy 
where unfortunately the wealthy do who do vote um, have much more control on public policy and um, the the um, economic fate of, of our countries. Um, and I think that that is also not an extreme that, that I find palatable. Um, but you know, uh, the one thing that we have learned, we've tried big government in the 70s. We've tried structural adjustment and stabilization where we shrunk government, more private sector. We've tried that in the 80s. Um, in the 90s, we focused much more with basically continuation of Washington consensus. We've had the debt relief. We've had China rise in the 2000s. And now we're in a place where I think many countries are really grappling with what is the way forward. Um, and I, I will just say that um, there is um, a, a chapter in the book that starts off, and maybe this is a, the chapter that I would encourage you to read. Um, it talks about how Simon Kuznets, who is the godfather who created the GDP um, calculation, and he says there are really only four countries in the world, which are, are um, developed, developing Argentina and Japan. And, um, and for, for reasons that we know, Argentina was in the top 10 wealthiest countries in the world. It's now in the bottom ranks um, in terms of economic growth. Japan was nowhere. Uh, extremely poor country um, is now one of the leading economies in the world. The truth is, as economists, we don't know how that really happened. I talk a little bit about what we think might have happened for both of those countries, um, but we don't know. And I think the further away we move away from ideology, um, from being so wed to ideology, we've got kernels of things that work, but we don't really know um, in a way that we should be sort of hang hanging on to different terminologies, I would say. Great. Another round? So over there. Hi. Uh <clears throat> Hi, my name is Jack. I'm a management consultant at PwC, so probably quite different to everyone else. Uh, my question is about your weighted voting proposal. Uh, Do not say it's about education. <laughs> no, it's, uh, are you concerned about the potential anger and backlash that could arise from such a proposal? Um, I was just imagining riots on the streets when people think, oh, these other people are going to have more votes than me on this particular policy. Uh, do you do you think that's likely, and do you think that's are you concerned about that? Um, I'm not concerned about that, but maybe it's just. Oh, I'm sorry. I might, we're taking more questions. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, All right. Sorry. Go for um, it. I'm not concerned about that, but maybe it's uh, I'm too optimistic about human beings. I think people. I, I mean, unless please put up your hand if you think that democracy is perfect and it's working ex in an excellent fashion. I mean, I'd love to hear from you. But to me, I think most people recognize that there seems to be some problems. We've got a lot of populism. When I go to China, people are like, "Well, actually, a lot of the problems are coming from the West. You, the financial crisis came from the West. Populism and instability is coming from the West. Um, look at the data around the tenure of people in heads of heads of states and democratic." elected societies, that number has come down considerably. It used to be around six years in the 1960s and 70s. It's now 3.4 years before they face an election. This is not a good um, dynamic. So, you know, I, I think that, um, and again, I'll just take myself. I don't claim to know everything. I don't know everything. I certainly don't know enough about medicine or education to opine on what policies would work. I would have thought that most people would say, actually, yes, I want the person who has the most amount of knowledge um, in that area to give me a, a perspective. Um, so, I, I mean, frankly, I don't see why it should be objectionable. Um, I will also just point out one thing which uh, I find very interesting. There's some, a number of books. Um, Charlie Munger, who's the right-hand man of uh, Warren Buffett, um, talks about how the best investors and the best decision makers are people who are actually polymaths. They don't just learn one subject. They go and learn about how 
biologists interpret population growth? How do economists interpret population growth? How do we think about these different, how do we think about the same problem but from different angles? How do physicists think about it? That's, those are the people who perform the best. Um, and so I think it's slightly arrogant for people to say, I want to vote on everything, because the truth of the matter is we don't know how best to, um, to execute in, in many of these areas. And I would be perfectly happy for people who have more uh, insight to, to offer perspective and, and actually to help us navigate more in, you know, in, a, in a more effective way what the best policies would be. I promise okay. not to say more. <laughs> Thank you. Lots of great ideas. My name's Hugo de Berg from the China Media Center, but I want to ask you about Britain and about the, your suggestions, your very interesting ideas for making politicians to think more long-term. Uh, but I do feel rather unenthusiastic about giving Jeremy Corbyn or Theresa May $1.4 million and a 10-year <laughs> term. So I wonder whether the reason that that's wrong is because they are career politicians who are in the have come up through the legislature. And what you've missed out there is that we need to divide the executive from the legislature. Yes, give 1.4 million to a great minister or prime minister, but don't let him dominate the legislature and be, in effect, non-accountable in the way that they are in the United Kingdom. So a division there. What do you think? Um, that's uh, wait, wait, let's, let's collect now. Take up. We're recording, so that's why. All good. Um, oh, are my we? question is about weighted voting again, because I found that as a very interesting concept. Um, I'm so sorry. Could you start again? I was. All oh, good. No problem. My and, question's and, about weighted also, voting. Can you introduce yourself? Um, my name's Mia. I'm an Australian. I'm just here touristing at the moment. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm going to be real. <laughs> Um, my it, question we have become is part of the tourist uh, <laughs> attraction. Yeah, so, you know, very experienced. <laughs> my question is, with regards to weighted voting, who or what group of people do you suggest we could give that responsibility to of allocating weighted votes in, like, order to minimise bias from self-interest? And how do you suggest that they actually make this decision and, like, where a line is drawn as who gets extra votes, who doesn't? Uh, hi, I'm Lisa. I'm an alumnus of the LSE. Um, I'm interested in the sustainability of economic growth. So in your title, you're kind of implying that the decline of or the, the stagnation of economic growth is bad. Um, how can we ensure positive economic growth? Because arguably it seems that with economic growth, we've also seen an increase in inequality. Should I go, go on? Okay. So um, the division of the legislature from the executive, um, that I think was actually supposed to be the way these things function, but I think in practice they don't. Um, I, I alluded to the point that executive orders in the United States have actually been increasing in different presidents. Um, that's the problem, that they do have a get-out-of-jail card or the free option that they can sort of usurp the legislature. But fundamentally I agree with you. I think it would be much more compelling um, if you did have um, this split between the politicians and, and essentially the civil service, which is the way actually everybody, I mean, people in this room who have lived outside of this country, there's always been a great reputation around the British civil service. And there is an argument to say, well, people who are in the civil service and not politicians should be paid more. Um, I find that also quite compelling. So I do think that you're, you're right, and, and I, I allude to it a little bit in talking about Singapore, the example in the book. Um, the second question is, 
who should determine who gets extra votes. So the, I, I do have a little bit of a section in this book about um, execution um, because all of these things would be hard to execute. You know, how do we actually think about mandatory voting? How do we transition to those places? And also, you know, um, you know how do we actually think about, um, you know, who who is actually going to bell the cat? Are the politicians themselves, I mean, it's a, the classic, the turkey doesn't vote for, for Christmas, so to speak. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Well, we're going to ask the Democrat, democratically elected leaders to go and decide that they should, uh, should curb the, how long they're in office. So uh, I do give some suggestions on how we might think about that. It's pretty open-minded because countries are in different the parliamentary democracies, they're different structures, they're countries that have more coalition approaches. So it, it, it does, I can't give a one, um, one, one thing, uh, sort of one uh, shoe fits all, but I do talk a little bit about execution and how that might be challenging. But it's a very good question. Um, but, you know, I think it's, a, it's another very, very big book to discuss how in different countries you could execute. But I do talk about that. Um, economic growth. I actually did a TED Talk on... Um, why ideology is the is the enemy of growth, and uh, you know how the question of essentially why we have a, we've had a lot of economic growth, but at the same time we've ended up with um, big in income inequality is is really at the crux of the matter. Um, from my vantage point, I would argue that a lot of the that explanation, the role of the reason we've seen that is because of misallocation by politicians. So politicians have been very short-term in their thinking. Um, and so even though there have been gains from globalization, for example, they misallocated those gains. And, you know, Jack Ma from Alibaba has a brilliant um, example of this. You know, the United States made significant gains from globalization. They earned certainly multiple billions, potentially even trillions of dollars um, in value from engaging in the globalization um, of the world. But what did they do with that money? Well, they essentially took the money, and which I will agree accrued more to the benefit of capital than labor, but that money was, was not invested in infrastructure. Today, the America's, America's infrastructure is graded a D-plus by the American civil engineers. Um, so this is the bridges, roads, ports, airports, etc. Um, it's graded D-plus by the American Civil Engineers Association. What did they do with all that money? Well, they took the money and they invested it in wars, fighting war in Iraq, fighting the war in Afghanistan. And you could argue, well, those are global public goods and it was important, but the, those trade-offs really matter. Um, and so, and I do think, had they taken a, a larger proportion of that money and invested in infrastructure, invested in retooling the workforce, um, you might not see such a big backlash. The other thing that happened, um, which I think was deleterious to the economic growth of, of the country, economic health of the country, is that the instead of taking that money and actually distributing it in terms of real wage appreciation, what ended up happening is people were getting into more and more debt. Um, and so we know the story of real wage um, deterioration, not just in the United States, but here and across major, major European countries over multiple decades. So for me, it's not that um, growth is bad. Um, I think that there are real questions about public policy allocation. It's very seductive for policymakers to go and fight a war, but what about the, the, the massive gaps in infrastructure um, that have, have actually now come home to, home to roost? It's not just physical infrastructure. It's about investment in education, um, as we talked about earlier, investment in, in infrastructure and, and, and in healthcare. Um, and those were things that have been big misses, and I think now the backlash is, is really on that. Jibril Fahl, I'm a visiting professor in practice here at IGA. Am I getting it wrong, or does it sound like you're feeling sorry for the United States? 
We all do. We all do. Yes. It, it's, it sounds like um, all of the dangers and the perils you identify relates to the United States. But the United States, it's neither the biggest nor the finest democracy. Correct. And the change that's happening may be happening somewhere else. Is that not perhaps a good shift? And uh, there was a question from someone who says he's from Kenya. With technology, Kenya is the world leader on mobile money, the world leader in mobile money. The only country that disputes it is Somalia, <laughs> which has no government for a long time. But mobile money is and technology is so effective. When I speak with colleagues there and I talk about remittances and mobile money and what the Central Bank of Somalia is doing, they often say to me, do we have a central bank? <laughs> no. So isn't it there's a shift, things are happening in India elsewhere, and that it's okay, the f- decline and fall of the United States may not be <laughs> apocalyptic. <laughs> Well, the next one. No, oh, I'm forgetting. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm studying late development here as a master's student. Um, I have a question on your weighted voting proposal. Um, and to what extent do you think that such issues as the NHS or education should be put down to the voter and whether it should be focused more on um, creating a technocratic bureaucracy? Sorry, creating a what? Uh, like a more expert um, administration in the civil service, putting it down to the professionals. I think um, the discussion on Brexit is quite a good example, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Behind you. Uh, Stanislas, I work in the city of London. What? what? I work here in the city, yeah. probably, uh, yeah. Um, we heard about it, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One of the rare bankers. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a question on, you mentioned on various occasions the lack of engagement. Uh, I'm so sorry, I'm struggling to hear you. Yeah. You mentioned on various occasions the lack of engagement from the voters mm-hmm. and potentially um, incentives that can be imagined or given to the voter. Um, did you think about any reward or what type of proposal would you have to engage people more in our society? Okay. Um, so isn't it okay for the fall of the United States? Um, I would never, ever... Uh, wish ill on any country anywhere um, in the world. And, and I think that given that the United States has been a massive contributor of innovation around the world, nobody in this room should wish that. Um, I think that just because a country has made some mistakes, I, I, like, my, I like to think of myself as a, a good marathon runner. I, I've run a few marathons, but I, I've definitely brought the African average down. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's in just in the much the sort of view of, of, of marathons, these are long-term Challenges and, I, and the, the fate of the, the global economy in its entirety is intricately linked to the fate of the United States. Um, it, it just is. It, it is um, economically, through trade, through foreign direct investment, through the aid system, but it, it is also in terms of um, you know, how we engage with, um, with, with groups that are non, that are, have a different ideology that are not state actors, you know, and, and we have to care about that. We sh- absolutely should care about that, which is why I'm deeply offended when the United States that takes a back seat and issues everything from health care but to global debates around climate change. We need big countries to be at the table. Um, the United States is the biggest CO2 offender. I mean, the notion that we can just say, well, too bad, good luck with them when they're polluting the the world's population, and these are porous borders, I think is, is, not, is not good enough. Um, you're absolutely right 
that um, the world has a lot to learn from other different places. I gave you a sample of that. I talked about Mexico and Brazil. I talked about Singapore. And these are not in the United States. It's not even in Europe. Um, and, but, you know, your point about technology is a very, very good one. Um, I happen to be on the board of Barclays Bank, our biggest, um, you know, push in terms of Pingit, in terms of mobile telephony, has come from owning and um, participating in Barclays Bank um, in, in East Africa and Kenya. So, of course there is. And it and and goes back to my point earlier about ideology. We should not wed ourselves to one view. Um, the, the, the kernels of innovation can come from anywhere. But I certainly do not think that we should take the view that um, some places are better than others or that uh, we shouldn't learn anything from, from other places. I think we need everybody to, to do better. Um, in terms of weighted voting, again, I should have just made it a whole book on weighted voting, actually. <laughs> um, uh, should it be left to the experts? You know, this, this term experts has got a very negative connotation. I know. I was here during the referendum. Um, I think that the point that I, I made earlier, which I think is the one that we should think about, is that, that there might be scope, you know, in, in, when, when we do have a referenda around specific issues, there may be scope for us to think about who is best served to address those questions. Places like California have a referenda all the time on a whole range of issues. And all I'm suggesting, and again, please remember what I said, this is not for wholesale consumption. It's supposed to be for debate. It's supposed to be for engagement. How might it work? Places, as I mentioned, Switzerland, Canada, they're already thinking about, could it work? Could we get better outcomes if we have the people who are trained, who actually have a broader understanding of these um, these areas? Again, not necessarily education, but have maybe read or have spent time working in these areas. Um, could we get a better outcome? And I, and I think we should be open to that. Um, you know, for the NHS and, uh, NHS and education, and I should just also make the point that we may not have got different outcomes um, on Brexit or on Trump or any of the populists, um, populism we've seen around the world recently because of, of adopting these proposals. Not at all. That's not the point. The point is that we would be in a situation where the, we, we, we would deem those outcomes as more legitimate and we would also take the view, I think, that, um, that it would better help us uh, um, not be in a situation where we're trying to decide whether or not we need to rerun the Brexit vote. Oh, but people didn't really know what they were voting for. I, I consider that very disruptive. I mean, when was the last time in this country since the Brexit, uh, um, Brexit vote have we had a serious conversation about education? or about health care, or about infrastructure. We've stopped talking about other public goods because everybody's obsessed about Brexit. It's pages and pages about Brexit, and if it's not Brexit, it's about Trump. But where is that discussion about these very, very long-term um, concerns? And that is what, what I find troubling. What would happen with voter engagement? Well, let me, th you know, I love carrot versus stick. I'll just tell you in terms of voter um, uh, mandatory voting, the, uh, there's a whole range of sticks um, that they use, actually. Um, actually, both sides, sticks and carrots, that they use to encourage voters. Um, the obvious one is voter fines, monetary fines, um, but, you know, to, to basically punish people if they don't vote. But on the other side, they, um, they are um, trinkets. They will say to you that you might not be able to get a job in government or in academia if you don't um, actually vote. You have to prove that you voted. Um, but they'll also say, well, if you do vote, you, you get more, um, more access to certain goods and services. In, in, in thinking, about, uh, thinking about that, um, one of the areas that I think is quite interesting and quite innovative that's happening in China, again, completely antithetical to the 
uh, individual vo vo uh, vote and choice uh, in the West, but I think it's an interesting concept, is this idea of sesame credits, um, where the government basically says, we care about society, so if you, Dambisa, do something that's really good, take your nephews out to play soccer at the weekend, that's great, that's good for society, so we're going to let you go and watch Black Panther first um, when it comes out. Or, you know, if your mom is sick, we'll let you uh, pass the queue and she gets um, treatment first. They're already doing this, um, and um, essentially they're trading off these, uh, in what you, you as individuals are contributing to society as having value in, in, uh, in, 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 in currency among the government. So I think that there are these innovations. I did talk to Michael Sandel, who I, I really love. Um, he wrote a, a book called What Money Can't Buy. He's fascinating. Again, buy my book first, then his book. Um, but, um, you know, he, he was very uh, much skeptical of this view. I mean, how did the government know that Dambisa was with her kids, her nephews, at, uh, um, you know, teaching them soccer, that kind of thing. But I think, um, you know, nevertheless, this question around voter engagement, how do we get people more engaged in community and society is something that I think is, is quite interesting. Okay, there are so many hands up. So I'm going to allow one more question. Hi, I'm Dylan. I'm a Year 12 student. Uh, I wanted to know, what do you think of the media uh, in relation to democracy? Is it a headwind? Uh, does it help um, promote democracy? Does it help? Yeah. Actually, I wasn't pointing at you, but if you... you know. <laughs> but, but it's okay. You, you, we, I'm going to allow one more. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jemisi. Um, my question is, um, do you think there's been an intentional move to create a politically illiterate society um, by self-interested elite politicians to further their own personal interests? And this political chaos, is it just a as a result of the aim going wrong? Sorry, so as a result of what? Do you think the chaos is a result of the, their aim of a politically illiterate society gone wrong? Um, so the role of media... So as you uh, – I do have a section in the book about media. Um, is the, the, we know that the media is supposed to be a key pillar of the function of democracy, but it's, it's also supposed to be objective. Um, it's supposed to be um, in a way that is um, – fosters engagement across different views. And uh, I would argue that that's clearly not been happening. In fact, in a world of social media, uh, we know that there are echo chambers that have been, you know, where people are much more in focusing or, or getting their news from a particular area. There's also a real concern around um, anonymity, as you know. So people don't, we don't know who's saying what they're saying, but they have significant influence on swaying people as voters. One of the things that I think about is whether or not we can have some kind of um, Glass-Steagall type of regulation. So for people who don't know, Glass-Steagall is a, a regulation in the banking sector which separates commercial banking or retail banking, so me going to my bank and getting money, versus what I call investment banking um, and the more uh, sort of corporate ba banking issues around hedging and speculating, and et cetera, um, and th that these are two separate entities. And in the same way, I wonder whether or not we can't have a sort of Glass-Steagall um, regulation for, for media so we can separate fact from opinion. Um, already in many newspapers, it will say opinion section, but um, in social media, we don't really have that, and so that might be be one path to, to, to remedy the, the issues around, um, around uh, technology. I will just point out one thing um, 
picking up on a question earlier, uh, I, I do believe that the, the ultimate and most effective democracy is the one where we vote as many people as possible, as knowledgeable as possible, and then the politicians essentially bugger off and go and do their jobs, which is go and do what we asked you to do. We don't want them coming back and regularly asking us, well, do you think we should cut taxes? Oh, do, by the way, you know, should we think about increasing expenditure? I don't like to, to see that system, and I think that the risk is in a world of technology. Um, we might get more of that, more referenda. We'll be sitting in our phones pressing, yes, I want a 15% tax rate. No, I don't want to, uh, to have more infrastructure right outside my house. And I just don't think that that is the kind that, – that worries me a lot in the, in the lens of the, um, the political challenges of, of the long-term economic problems. Um, I'm not – I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so the notion that there's some dark force behind a, uh, a dark curtain, it just doesn't, doesn't sit with me. And the more, as a, as a black woman from Africa, the more I'm sitting here, by the way, I should say, when I was born in, uh, I have to say my age, I think I already did, but in 1969, when I was born in Zambia, um, they did not issue black, black uh, birth certificates to black, black individuals. So think about that. that. That law only changed in 1974. So I think to myself, gosh, I've gone from not being counted as a human being to sitting in front of the LSE illustrious crowd in London. Anything is possible. Why should I think that there's some crazy person with a, a deep, dark force? I just, don't, I just don't take that view. I mean, is it harder um, to be in places where traditionally they haven't had people like me? Absolutely it is, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Um, and, you know, I, I'm very grateful for my parents for, for not telling me. I only found out when I was 18 and I was going to university that I didn't have a birth certificate. Um, for those of you who are interested, I, I showed this birth certificate, the, the affidavit, because I don't have a birth certificate, but I have an affidavit, which it's very explicit. It says this affidavit is for Dambisa Moyo, who was born February 2nd, 1969, at the time of her birth. She, as a black, born to two black parents, doesn't, was not issued a birth certificate. The only people issued birth certificates, and they list every other race, whites, Indian, you know. And I, and I thought to myself, gosh, if my parents had told me that when I was six, I would probably not be here. They just didn't bother. They just said, oh, yeah, you want to go to, to the U.K.? Why not? And you know what? I think that that's the attitude we should all adopt. Um, and, you know, in, in that's why this, that's really the impetus for these proposals. Why shouldn't we think about improving democracy? Um, it's not perfect, and it's dynamic. So thank you. You're not the only one without a birth certificate. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> but... but um, you know, if you look at this crowd, this idea of engaging people uh, works. And, and uh, so you should continue your tour. I'm very sorry so many of you have wanted to ask questions. I just, there just wasn't um, room for all of you, even though I think that Bisa has done, done a beautiful job of, of um, answering a, a lot of very different questions. And I think we can all agree that she's onto something, like in her previous books. There is something wrong in our, in our democracies, in our political systems. And I think the challenges you point out, you know, we, we, they are there for sure. And you managed to provoke some idea. You got a discussion going about, you know, what can we do about it? How can we fix it? And, um, you know, it's perhaps a sign of our times that it takes, you know, a black woman from Zambia without the birth certificate to fix the United States. So good luck. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so. you.